It is an honor to be here with you all today and to share the word of God with you, uh, Church Grace Fellowship Church. Uh, I am Zuriel Medina, as it was already mentioned. I am originally from Mexico. That's where I was born and lived for about half of my life. That is where I met my beloved wife, Ruth, who is with me. Uh, that's where my first child was born, Camila, my oldest. Uh, I have two, I have one other daughter, Isabella. She's in the nursing room. And as a dear sister said here, there's one in the oven. Uh, my wife is pregnant, so with our third. Uh, but for that, we, we, we rejoice in the Lord, for his providence is good, and all perfect gifts come from our heavenly Father. I'm a student at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and we're planting a church, a Reformed Baptist church, uh, Spanish-speaking in Holland, Michigan. So we ask for your prayers for that, and our church sends you all greetings from Holland. Please open with me the word of the Lord in John chapter 4. That is where the message for this morning will be based on. And I'm going to be reading from verses 1 through 29. And I will ask that you follow along diligently as I read this passage out loud. And it says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town, a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. 
The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation has come from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jaw and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Please go, to, go with me to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you humbly. looking at your word and recognizing that it is your holy and eternal word and that it is by your grace that we can open it and we can read it and not just read it but ponder ponder the truths the everlasting truths that are found in it may your words and your truths transform our lives and may they save the lost. May you bring your scattered sheep into your flock. In your name I pray. Amen. The title of this message is Finding True Satisfaction and Worship in Christ. Finding True Satisfaction and Worship in Christ. There is a fourth century theologian by the name of Augustine of Hippo. And perhaps many of you have heard of him. In one of his works, uh, one called The Confessions, he wrote this in his first chapter. Actually, it was one of the the first few phrases that he mentioned. He, He said this, referring to God. You move us to delight in praising you, for you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. Certainly, the words of Augustine are true. Augustine links the worship of God, the praise of God, with the satisfaction of our souls. All souls seek satiation and satisfaction one way or another. And all souls seek to worship someone or something one way or another. The problem is that we can never come to a point of satisfaction Because we can never in and of ourselves find the joy of worshiping the true and living God. So how are we to reconcile these two issues? How are we to know that our souls are indeed satisfied? And at the same time that we are worshiping the triune God. The problem goes further still. 
We have this evil, this thing in us from which we cannot get away. It is sin. Sin devours us and consumes us. And the way, and the more we try to consume it to obtain satisfaction, the less we are satiated and the more miserable we become. And worse yet, sin is the impenetrable barrier from us to enter into the presence of the Lord. Sin makes it impossible for us to know God. Sin makes it impossible for us to worship God. And to worship Him is the reason why we were created. So if we cannot worship Him, and we cannot accomplish the chief end for which we were created, is this not the biggest and most deplorable of our problems? Today, we will look into a narrative, the one we read, John chapter 4, which will reveal to us the solution to this serious problem. This passage reveals the heart of man. Brother and sister, this passage reveals your own heart. I urge you to ponder God's word and to search deeply inside your soul. To examine yourself deeply. To dissect your own heart with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our soul is paraplegic, right? It's, it's dead. It's paralyzed. And it cannot find true worship or satisfaction until it finds it in Christ. So the main truth of this message, the one thing I want you to take away from this is that because Christ is the only one who can satisfy our souls and is the only one through whom worship can be rightly performed, we must leave our sinful lives and believe in him. As you probably noted in this narrative, it is Christ who is leading the conversation. So we will let his words lead the message today. Isn't it wonderful to even rely on him to lead and structure whole sermon. In our passage, we can observe Christ's intentionality as he leads the conversation. Firstly, he began, he began speaking of water, which was a gateway to present the water of life, which is found in him. This is our first heading, Christ presents living water. But we see Christ not only presenting this living water, which is graciously offered to the Samaritan woman, We see Christ lovingly exposing that which prohibits her from drinking the everlasting and the ever-deep well of living waters. Christ exposes her sin. This is our second heading. Christ exposes deadly sin. And toward the end of the conversation, as it is coming to a close, a third topic is introduced. Worship. Our third heading is that Christ reveals true worship. So let us drink today, brothers and sisters. Let us indulge in Christ's living word. And may he reveal our hearts and be prepared for Christ to reveal your own heart. And may we worship him even as we listen to his preached word. So starting with Christ presents the water of life. Before he he presents, excuse me, the living water, he speaks of regular water, does he not? We can go to verse 7. 
And verse 7 says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Jesus here is the one who initiated the conversation with a Samaritan woman. And it is as if he's seeking her because he had to pass through Samaria. Now this, this phrase, he had to pass through Samaria in the beginning of our chapter, is not only, only talking about his journey up to Galilee, which he had to make, and, and, and Samaria was right in between Judea and Galilee. So it's not only talking about the geographical journey that he had to pass through. It's more talking about his divine will. He had to pass through Samaria because he wanted to pass through Samaria. He wanted to seek this woman. He sought after this woman. And we see in verse 23 that tells us the father is seeking those who worship so it was around noon, and Jesus had a long trip up to the sound of Sychar, where this Jacob's well was. He was hot, and he was thirsty. And this is a perfect analogy for the true longing of our souls. Of course, Christ did not long for what we long, that spiritual longing, for he was one with the Father, correct? But the woman could see that Christ was physically and evidently thirsty. As he asked for water, he did so in a very polite manner. Perhaps in English, if you just go up to a random woman and tell her, give me water, it sounds rather harsh. But at those times, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't like this, especially coming at, as, as the Samaritan woman pointed out. A Jew, a Jewish man speaking to a Samaritan woman. It was, it was uncommon. It was very uncommon for a man to... to to talk to a Samaritan woman. And he asks for water. So very, very brief, briefly, I want to explain, and this is not the point of, of the message, but I want to explain that Jesus was fully man. He experienced the thirst that you and I experience. Because he had a body, a body of flesh, a body of flesh and bone. Yes, he was fully God, but he was fully man as well. In fact, this is what the Gospel of John wants to present to the world, that the eternal God, the eternal Logos, was made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus here uses his humanity, his thirst, and his longing for water after a long and hot journey to present to us the longing of all souls. More specifically, the longing of this Samaritan woman. This is when Christ presents the living water. And as Christ is guiding this conversation to get to the heart of it, he says over in verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Why does he say this? Why does he say, if you would have asked the one asking you for water? Well, it's because it's Christ himself who offers this living water. It's he who can give this living and eternal water to men. Why? It's because he is God. He is God 
in the flesh. If we go to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, the word of the Lord says there that, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And further on in chapter 17 of Jeremiah, in verse 13, it says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you, shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. So Christ here in verse 10 is making a reference to himself. They have a well there, a physical well, from which they can draw water, but he references himself as the source, as the fountain of this living water. Now let's read verses 11 through 14 once again, and it says, The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it, himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Christ indicates here to this woman that he's not speaking of physical water, but a spiritual need that is found in her soul. What is this living water? Perhaps you may ask. What is the water of life? Well, there are a few interpretations of this, but it is very clear that Christ is referring to to that which they have rejected, as we could see in Jeremiah chapter 2. A commentator says this, They have rejected the fresh, running supply of God and his faithful goodness, choosing instead the stagnant waters of cisterns. This living water is everything that flows from the gospel, which fills and satisfies the hearts of man. It is salvation that is brought by the Holy Spirit of God. It is the knowledge of God himself. It is the experiential and day-by-day grace and comfort that is found in Jesus Christ. And the transforming and regenerating power of our gospel. And this power, this gospel, turns our longing hearts for sinfulness to a desire of honoring God and his commands. This is the living water. Everything that flows out of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything that is the effects of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this living water is found only in Christ. We have understood this. Christ is the fountain of living waters. Everything that the gospel brings to man is found only in him. And behold, our glorious Christ. This is why we worship him. He has satiated our souls. He has satiated our souls. Verse 14, I'm going to repeat it. It says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The phrase will never be thirsty again. It literally means, it literally says, that will not thirst for eternity. That's what it literally says. And it's a huge difference, isn't it? Our text says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But in the Greek it says, everyone who drinks of this will not be thirsty for eternity. It is an eternal satiation. And the text says that this water, this living water, will become in him a spring of water. The passage or the the text literally explains that whatever Christ will place in a person will in and of itself become in him a spring of water. The person indwelled by this spring of living water does not cooperate in this. It is not something that you do, that you accomplish. It is something that Christ places in you. And once he places the spring of living water in you, you are set for life. You are set for eternity. This spring is being described as constantly being welling up, boiling up. Now this welling up, in in grammar it's called a, a, a present participle. Now allow me to explain what a participle is. A participle is a verbal adjective. It's not an adverb. It's not a, a, a word that is, des- that is describing a verb, but it's a word characterized by a verb. And what is this verb? It's welling, welling. So this spring that Christ places in a man, in a person, will constantly be described as welling Continually, continually welling up, boiling up inside the believer. And this is a precious reality for us believers. That we have this fountain of living water inside of us. That for eternity, it will be constantly flowing, flowing. How about you, dear unbelieving friend? you have a spring of water in your soul? Is something in you constantly flowing from within that satiates your longing, the longing of your soul? The reality is that all unbelieving people are longing for this source. And you know you are longing for this. Yet you try to fill yourself with sin. You devour sin. But then that sin devours you. And no matter how much of it you take in, it does not satisfy you permanently. It may please you you temporarily, but it does not satisfy you permanently. And here in our narrative, we find that Christ is loving enough to expose that which the Samaritan woman was seeking after, was longing after. She had had five marriages, and she is on her, or she had four marriages, and she was on her fifth 
And this fifth person was not even her husband, which shows her heart of longing for satisfaction. Perhaps you, perhaps you are this person. Verse 16, it says, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Here, though the woman seems to be intrigued and interested in drinking of this living water, Jesus was not quick to give it to her before he exposed her of her sin. He starts by saying, go get your husband. Now, this may not seem as if she was being sinful by having a husband, but as I already explained, she had had been living a sinful life by having five husbands, and now she was living with a man who was not her husband. Which is why the the woman in verse 17 says, I have no husband. Now Christ here is being omniscient. He's being all-knowing. He knows all. And he knew this and wanted the Samaritan woman to realize that he knew her sins. Now the last time that I preached from this passage... It was quite interesting because afterwards, a dear sister came to me and we had visitors in our church. This dear sister came to me and told her, told me, uh, brother, one of the sisters that was here, she's had five husbands and now she's left her fifth. Perhaps I think she might be living with another man. Now, I wasn't expecting this at all. And perhaps here... I hope that there's not a Samaritan woman that has had five husbands. But we are all sinners. We all do relate to this Samaritan woman. Let's see what our text says in verse 17. It says, The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. Christ responds here by saying, you're right. But in our, in our original passage, he emphasized the fact that she was lacking a husband. He knew, he knew her sins. In English, we read, I have no husband, says the woman. And then Christ says, you're right, you have no husband. But in our original text, it would sound something like this. The woman would say, I have no husband. And then Jesus would say, you're right in saying. And then he emphasizes the first, he emphasizes this. Husband, I have not. He mentions the word husband first. Christ knew her sins. And though, unlike last time I preached, it is highly improbable that there be another Samaritan woman or man in our midst. But Christ, in his omniscience and his all-knowing nature he knows your sin dear brother dear sister dear unbelieving friend christ knows your sin you can't trick christ you might be able to trick people in this congregation you might be able to trick your father your mother if you are young sees some kids over there, young people. But you cannot trick Christ. He knows your sins. He can name them. Just as he named the Samaritan woman's sin, he can name your sin right here, right now. So what are your sins? 
You know which sins you are committing. What do you indulge in constantly? It could be that it's not multiple marriages and adultery, physical adultery like this Samaritan woman. But what about mental and emotional adultery? What about consuming adult content? What about lusting after men, after women? Is this not adultery? Doesn't Christ specifically say that this is adultery in Matthew chapter 5? Perhaps it isn't sexual sins, but it could be drugs. Perhaps it's not illegal drugs, but painkillers. You're going to all of these to seek satiation, satisfaction. Perhaps it's alcohol. It's so prevalent in our days. Christ knows your sin. For believers, our lives should not be characterized by sin. Unbelievers, they're dead in their trespasses and sins, correct? But believers, we should not be characterized with sin. We have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. No sin can therefore be a constant in our lives. Of course, we will continue to commit sin, but our lives should not be described by a constant indulging in a particular sin. We were like the Samaritan woman before, but now we have the Spirit of God, and we have this spring in us, welling up for everlasting life. Young people, even children, perhaps you are not of age even to be married, let alone five times like this woman. Perhaps you may say, I've never committed anything grave. Nothing has really been all that serious. But think of all the times that you've dishonored your parents or all the wrongdoings at school. Perhaps you say words that you shouldn't. and These words make you feel good about yourself. I'm saying all these words. Or perhaps you speak of topics of which you shouldn't. Perhaps even gossip of people. Talk about them behind their backs. Kind of makes you feel good about yourself, doesn't it? To feel good about, or to feel good when you're talking wrongly of other people. Well, this is a sin. Gossip is a sin. So I've just mentioned a few of potential sins that may be in our lives. Perhaps it's a sin that you uh, relate to or not, but the reality is that Christ is loving enough to expose us to our sin, to open our eyes to it, because this sin will never satisfy us and will never allow us to truly know him. Sin will never allow us to truly possess and drink from the living water. He also knows that because of sin, we can never in and of ourselves worship him truly. Which brings us to our third point. Christ reveals true worship. We move on in our passage, and we can see that worship was a problem for the Samaritan woman. And worship 
is a problem for all of us when we are outside of Christ. This woman was not worshiping the triune God. Apart from a sinful and adulterous life, this woman had been practicing idolatry for her whole life. We can see this in verse 20. Go with me to verse 20, and it says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. It is evident that this woman was confused. She was pointing to two places, correct? She was pointing to that which she refers to as this mountain, and then she points to Jerusalem as the other place where one should worship. And she's wondering, where do people worship? Where should people worship? Now, Samaritans, um, just a little background information, they were most likely descendants of the undeported northern kingdom. And foreign colonists brought in from Babylon and media by the Assyrian conquerors of Samaria. They adapted the worship of the God of Israel with the gods of Babylon, which created direct theological confrontation with, with Jews. That's why it was so strange for a Jewish man to talk to a Samaritan woman. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And Samaritans had a syncretistic religion. Now what this means is simply that they mixed different religions and they worshipped however they, they would want to. So they, they combined the worship of the, of the Assyrian gods and the worship of the Jewish god, and, and they mixed them together, and that's the way they would worship. Isn't that kind of strange of what is happening in our society as well? Um, we have so many. We, sometimes we, we have a syncretistic religion. Sometimes we even practice, you know, yoga and all of this. Not that stretching and, and exercising oneself is wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But all of this new age and Eastern philosophy meditation that we try to encrust in our lives to better ourselves and to improve ourselves. It's more of a worship to ourself, isn't it? Sometimes we forget that. We're kind of being syncretistic in our worship. We ought to guard ourselves from doing so. And it, it, we, we achieve, going back to satisfaction, we achieve no satisfaction in this. Likewise, we achieve no worship. But back to verse 20, she refers to here that there were two temples. Now, history tells us that for Samaritans, they believed that they, they had to worship in this mount called Mount Gerizim. And that's, that's the mount that this Samaritan woman was pointing to. And this, in this Mount Gerizim, there was an altar. And there they, they sacrificed their animals and they brought their worship to what they believed was their God. And we also know from our, from our Bible, from the Holy Word of God of the Old Testament, we know that there was a temple in Jerusalem that Jews would go to and worship the true God. So this woman was confused. So do I worship here in Gerizim? Or do I go to Jerusalem and, and worship there at the temple? This woman was alluding to a place. But when Christ answers, 
he doesn't answer by pointing to, her, to, her, to a place. Christ does not send her to Jerusalem. He does not send her to Mount Gerizim. In fact, he implicitly states that neither Jews nor Samaritans know who they were worshiping. Neither Jews nor Samaritans. Listen to verse 21. And it says, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Notice that in verse 22 he says, you worship what you do not know. And the Jews, we worship what we know. He never uses the word who. They don't know who they're worshiping. Neither Jews nor Samaritans. This is because they have rejected the knowledge of God in the Messiah, in Christ himself. Doesn't John chapter 1 say that Christ came for his own, but they rejected him? They did not know who they were worshiping. And then verse 22 says that salvation is from the Jews. What does this verse mean? What does this statement mean? It means that salvation has always been in the Jews. It has always been because of the Messiah. We have it foreshadowed in Genesis 3.15. Perhaps you remember that passage. You know, that, that they say that it's the first, uh, that the first sign of the, first, of the covenant of God, you know, demonstrating his faithfulness, his, his faithful love with those whom he would call. And then he would, he would show that a Messiah, a, a promising seed, would come. He did so through a curse to Satan. Then we see it in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And then so on. And a few more times, many more times in the Old Testament. So Christ here was pointing to himself as the one through which true worship is performed. Christ makes it very clear by repeating a particular phrase in verses 21 and 23. He repeats this phrase, the hour is coming. The hour is coming. Now throughout John, this phrase, the hour is coming, is, is, is very prevalent. He repeats it time and time again. And this phrase is used to refer to his death, to Christ's death. Whenever you're reading John, and you come to this phrase, automatically think, oh, this is Christ referring to his death. It is pointing to his sacrifice, the appointed time of his suffering and of his bearing of our sins. It has always been an appointed time. When God foreshadowed in Genesis 3.15, it was an appointed time. When he repeated his covenant and shed more light of this, as Jehardas Vaz would say, he, would, he was thinking of an appointed time. And the hour had not come yet when Christ was speaking to this woman. In the Old Testament times, 
They would look to the future as it is once as it is described, not isn't it so? When they were in the future, in order to be, or when they were in the Old Testament, in order to be saved, they would look into the future to this promise of the Messiah. At the times of Jesus, it was then when they would have to look and behold the Son of God, the one who was to be slain on the cross. But now, what do we do? We look back. We look back to Christ's atoning death. We look back to his sacrifice. It was fulfilled. The appointed time was fulfilled. And his sacrifice is what is central in our passage. It teaches us. It's central to true worship. Christ did not point to a place. He pointed to himself. Because it is through him that we can access the Father's presence. It is not a coincidence that the veil in the temple was torn when Christ gave his final breath on the cross. You remember that story, right? The temple was torn. The veil, or sorry, the veil was torn. This, this veil that separated the temple, in the temple, the holy place, from the holiest place where the presence of God was. It is because of Christ's appointed time and his death that man can worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Let's go to verses 25 through 26, and it says, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, coming, he who is called Christ. When he becomes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. We see that Christ reveals himself to the woman as the one who is telling her of all things. I who speak to you am he. It is evident that the woman had heeded to Christ's command. In verse 21, Christ says, believe me, believe me. This woman had believed Christ. He had seen that, she had seen that her, her soul was longing for so much more than the sinfulness which she had practiced. She had seen that she had not been worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And she had seen that Christ was that Messiah. The Samaritan woman who made no more comments about worship had understood that in Christ was the answer and the only way to true worship. Again, we also see that her soul was satisfied. The woman had come to the Jacob's well to retrieve physical water, but she had found, <clears throat> excuse me, she had found the spiritual, living, and ever-satisfying water of life. She had even forgotten about, about, about why she had gone to this well in the first place. Notice verse 28 says that she left her water jar. She left it. The Greek, it means she abandoned it. She just completely 
forgot about her bucket. She had found the fountain of living water. So how about you, friend? Christ has revealed your sin to you today. Are you going to believe him that he is the source of living water? How about you, dear believer? Are you going to abandon your life which is profane to that which he has already done in you? Placed inside of you a well of living water that is constantly welling up inside of you. Leave your sins. Leave them behind. And believe that Christ is the only one who can satisfy your soul and can make possible a true worship to the Father. Amen. still um, you can hop in a jet and go there today from, to that very well Jacob's well where Jesus met this uh, Samaritan woman has anybody gone there no. because um, you can still take a sip from that or you can choose the living water amen and that is our prayer that you would typically I would stand but I can't stand Sorry, but I'm going to have to ask you to stand. <laughs> I'm a real grouch. God be with you till we meet again. By his counsel's guide of hope.